0: All uh, right. Yeah. I'm
1: Paul Schaefer. I'm Will Lee. And you are watching the Letterman Podcast. No! Welcome once again to the Letterman Podcast. Uh, my name is Mike Chisholm. I am excited to be here. Um, and uh, thank you for everybody who has, uh, you know, reached out, realizing that my city has been on fire this last week. And it has. It seems like things are calming down. I appreciate everybody who has reached out and, uh, um, you know, wished for the safety. Uh, and for those who, you know, wish that the studio would burn down and the show would burn down. Uh, sorry about that. But thank you for, you know, uh, not reaching out and telling us as much. Um, this is a fantastic episode. Sometimes I shoot these intros uh, before uh, the guest and I have a chance to talk and sometimes we shoot it after. This one is after and you can kind of see it by the It was fantastic. Chris Shukai is a wealth of anecdotes and gratefulness and entertainment uh, when it comes to uh, telling stories about the world of David Letterman and company. Um, He was Paul's guy. He was kind of in many ways Paul's right hand, Paul Schaefer's right hand for 10 years and actually stayed associated with the show. He worked uh, from 93 to 2003, so that's when the show basically started at CBS. Uh, and then after 2003 ended up staying on as well just doing it remotely Um, so so right up to the end right up to the very very end so here's a guy who has created uh, a lifelong memory uh, a letter lifelong letterman memory and and some of his best friends in the whole world are friends from that show we talk about all sorts of stuff in this episode oh my gosh i get a chance to ask about some very, very cool moments, even though we're building rapport and doing all this stuff. The next time he comes on, I mean, there's so many moments I want to ask him about musical moments, but, uh, he does a really, really good job of, 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 um, allowing kind of my chaotic brain that goes from one place to another to, uh, he, he just, he's a pro you could tell he's a pro in every, uh, you know, uh, sense of the word, uh, just really appreciate him so much. Uh, he's back home uh, where he grew up now in Nebraska. And he's working for a local school district as a as a fundraiser for um, capital projects. And I just appreciate where he is coming from. He has the same um, you know energy that he brought to Late Show that you can tell that he's attacking that project. And we talk about in the episode how people can support some of these projects as well. I just he's got a great heart, uh, a keen mind, a great history, and uh, we're gonna get right to it right now. So the Letterman Podcast is proud to present Chris Shukai. Chris Shukai is here. I am excited about this. I have been wanting to have this conversation uh, for a long time. Um, Chris, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come on the Letterman Podcast. So happy to be here, Mike. I've been a I've been a fan of the
0: podcast, been uh, a faithful viewer, and uh, so uh, glad to have my chance to be in there. You've gotten some big names, and uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can deliver
1: like like they can, but uh, I'll I'll share what my stories are. Well, um, the secret to 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 my mentality is that you're all big names. Having you on is just as important. Uh, we just had a we just had a, a an intern on named Molly Sweet. She was on for one summer. In '91, back at Thirty Rock, and um, it, it's funny because she, she inadvertently was responsible for the Smashing Pumpkins getting their very first uh, network television debut. Like this is back in '91. This is uh-huh. long before you know the you know the they, they broke per se, and 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 just that story alone. Hearing that this gal who was just there for a few months and a conversation that she had in the in the office there uh, with some of the people who were you know, trying to push this, this up and coming band, you know, it led to in many ways history. Um, So yes, having you on is so important to me because if you have been watching the show, you know how much I love music and I love the musical segments that late night and late show had, I think they're extremely important. um, And, and I want to celebrate those as well. So as we get going here, uh, you started in '93 with Late Show, and what was the, your uh, what was your title while you were there?
0: Yeah, so um, it, it's kind of a weird buildup. I I come to New York. I'm growing up in in central Nebraska. Went to college in central Nebraska. I'll give a shout out to Hastings College. Great, wonderful place. Um, and what's the team? Uh, Do they have a team? Uh, yeah, they're Broncos. Go Broncos. Fighting Broncos. Go bo- yeah, Okay, that's right exactly on. right. <laughs> um, and so luckily I had some professors push me into this fellowship program that was sponsored by the International Radio and Television Foundation. Uh, I think they, they may be a society now or something, but they're still continuing this program, which is phenomenal. And they took kids from all over the country and brought them to New York City for a summer. And so that's how I got... To New York City because remember in this was 1993 the internet does not exist oh. um, so it seemed how would I even start to know how to get to Manhattan and find a place to live and all of those things just seemed so overwhelming. Yep, but luckily this. Summer experience really is what it was. Um, had dorms, we were at the dorms at NYU and another group of 18 fellow students ready to hit the city and explore and do all of that. So I had a base of friends. Um, anyway, I had nothing with Letterman at that point, but I. No. it was a fortunate summer that we're in the summer between NBC and CBS. And I had graduated from college already and I decided, I don't really have anything else going on. Let's see what happens. I was obsessed with late night, like so many others. Um, And now I've been much more willing to share that. I mean, I want to thank Jimmy Kimmel for his willingness to share all of his (laughs) obsession as a kid. And uh, you know, and then through podcasts like this and everybody else realizing, Oh, I wasn't. And I had a group in high school that loved, we loved late night lived for everything. So I was a bit obsessed with it. And that was the ultimate place to be. And you would watch that every night at, for me in the central time zone at 1130 at night. And you would say, wow, that must just be amazing. That must be an amazing place. So I ended up just sort of randomly trying to make some calls and ended up showing up at 30 Rock. They They had ended the late night, but they were still in the offices and doing some moving. And I'm gonna drop a lot of letterman names here because Please they're wonderful do. people. This uh, is the but place. Zoe to do Friedman, it. Susan yep. Schreier Miller. They were so kind to me as I went up there. And then I met with Dave Hamilton and Christine Schomer. And I think Jay was there, Jay Johnson, who yep. had turned, but I can't remember, which is terrible because Jay went on to be one of my closest friends. <laughs> um, and but I I talked with them and I thought, well, okay, let's hope and see what happens. Um, And I ultimately get the call and I'm still in New York. And it's like, hey, yes, we'd like to have you. And it was really for an internship, because I just thought, can I get my foot in the door? And of course, those were the days they weren't paying for interns or anything like that. But luckily, I had a little bit of savings and I, we were living in Union City, New Jersey, four people in a one-bedroom. I had a cot. I was just telling the story to somebody else this morning. I We had a cot, and I had three uh, milk crates to my name, basically. That was it. Um, but I got on and interning, and it was for Chris Albers, who was working with Paul at that yep. point. So Chris had been trying to get some writing opportunities going, uh, both at – late night and ultimately late show, but got a job then in October. So they premiere in August of 30. I get there a week before we're doing shakedown shows. I, I sort of know New York, but I'm still about as green as it can possibly be right off the central Nebraska proverbial farm. I didn't grow up on a farm, but, uh, felt, I mean, I had that sort of naive look about me, uh, with everything in the city. And, um, so Chris gets a job at what at that point was the Jon Stewart MTV show. Wow. John hosted the uh, show on N- MTV. with yeah, Howard. And,
1: and, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And so I don't know if it was just sort of matter of, hey, who's got a pulse? And I'm sitting there in the office. But somehow I sort of take over that role. And so it's technically assistant to the musical director or assistant to Paul Schaefer is the title for that and um, get in there quick. I am incredibly unprepared for the job. I'm incredibly, I mean, not only was it my first full-time job after college, it was basically one of my first full-time jobs and I had worked in local television stations in Nebraska. So my office etiquette and just knowledge of some professional sort of level standards was not where it really should be. And so you will hear me say this all the time. God bless Paul Schaefer for his kindness, his patience. Um, I'm sure there were times where he was like, this kid, uh, you know, and it was at a very stressful time. That first fall, you know, the Nielsen ratings were coming out every day. It was that battle. There was some pressure. Dave was feeling pressure. The entire show was feeling pressure that this yep. had to be successful. Yep. And for me to sort of be bumbling around that first fall uh, and Paul letting me survive through that is was just an act of grace like no other.
1: Um, there is so much in that introduction that I could pick apart and get into the first thing I got to ask, because, you know, you know, uh, you know, Sinatra nailed it. If I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. New York, obviously I'm, I'm the Zach guy in high school too, where there was like eight or nine of us that just loved Letterman and, and, oh man, your um, staff favorite moments package that Walter and the team created was fantastic that they, Cause I'm sure that there's all sorts of stuff that they could have cut together and put there. I'm so glad they put where you talked about the moment that you took the VHS tape of late night <laughs> to school to show. I was that guy too. I remember my band teacher and I were both huge Letterman fans and huge music fans, you know, from Canada, he's a jazz pianist. He loved Paul Schaefer so much. And we would spend time during band class. Talking about bits from the night before of yeah. that first season in the Ed Sullivan theater, by the way. So these moments and in in trying to get the rest of the band, <laughs> the students to, to to get on board this train and become part of this club and 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 you you captured it so perfectly what we're trying to do with this show. And there are so many people who felt like they were part of that club. That now are wanting to get together and talk about these moments because they were so special, so important. you're one of those guys. and uh I, I love that. so 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 you know, i'm I'm very grateful you talked about that, yeah. Um, well,
0: I did have that formative experience with late night, definitely. And, you know, I mean, it was as much as Dave is sort of giving us as sort of this group of friends cues on even how to live uh, how to talk to girls, uh, you know, all of those things. Okay. Wrestling shoes with khakis. That's kind (laughs) of cool. So maybe we try that. And, and, you know, it was just sort of all of those things were so formative at that time.
1: Oh my God. I, yes, absolutely. And we're still (laughs) feeling it some 35, 40 years later. Like we're still feeling it to this day. And I just, I, I, I adore that, uh, we can share that kinship now again, to go back to Frank. Um, you know, New York obviously has this pull. We're 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 fans in high school, love it very very much. We want to be part of the club. New York is it. It's got the magnet, the pull. But guys like me, Western Canada, Nebraska, you know, never been there before. You got some training wheels, which is great. Uh, but I just am so curious about those first couple of months, even before you know the, the the Letterman stuff showed up. Getting used to New York. I mean, your eyes must have been wide for, you know, every single day there must have been new things that just blew your mind.
0: Yeah, incredibly wide. And again, you know, looking back, I'm again so grateful that it worked out to to do this through that IRTS summer experience because there was, there were 19 other students ready to go out and explore as well. Because on my own, I'm a guy that was probably scared of my shadow a little bit (laughs) and forget about the stories of what New York City had been. And this was sort of pre-cleaned up Times Square and and things like that. So, you know, it was the the edgier New York uh, in all areas of it. And all I knew were the stories instead of really living it. And so even a a jaunt down the stairs of a subway was like, I thought I was the boldest, Uh, you know, I was the bravest person in the world to be doing this. And um, it was, but it was great and it was fun. And you know, that energy was just so incredible and you get sucked into that. And then those early days of the show, the energy around the theater was phenomenal. You know, that first night, that premiere night, it's satellite trucks from local stations just around the block and then just a monster crowds. And that did not let up for several years, you know, as far as just 53rd Street being just mobbed with people, just trying to grab shots of of celebrities coming in out of the stage door and things like that. And the one thing I tried to do, I mean, I did realize how lucky I was very, very early on. And I'd come up out of that subway or early on, I was walking from Port Authority uh, on 8th Avenue and um, I, and you'd get to the theater and you just realized, wow, uh, this is the center of the universe in some cases. And certainly in my world, it was, this is where it was all happening. And I, I, I tried to always savor and really realize, wow. I get to go inside. That's yes. really great. And and how
1: special that was. Um, you are articulating these feelings so well. The energy, because I mean, again, I try and tell people, uh, you know, who are, who are under 30, you know, people who are over 30 kind of understand it. And they, they they understand the cultural impact, but people under 30 don't understand like the cover of Time Magazine. Like, like there was, arguably, there was no bigger story in entertainment Then the late shift, then, then the time that Johnny announced the retirement all the way up to, you know, you know, yeah, like you said, several years into late show and people were riveted all of the time talking about it constantly. Um, You know, the younger under 30 crowd got kind of a flash of it in 2010 when late shift two happened, but uh, you know, it was such an amazing thing and you being able to soak up all that energy being an an incredible enthusiast of it knowing you were there like present and knowing you were a part of history all around you um i imagine that those first few weeks bumbling not sure all of that you would have you you probably worked so many hours you would done anything to keep that position i assume like that was uh, I mean, that was a- so- absolutely
0: it yeah. and it was yes and Uh, Of course, my office space, the space in the offices were nicer than my living spaces were. Again, (laughs) I had four people. So it wasn't such a bad thing to be at work from... From the top of the morning until late, late at night, uh, that actually worked out quite nicely because it was a better place to be. Um, I was also going to mention, you know, the Jay versus Dave sort of vibe was was just a national obsession. Yes. And I was just mentioning this to somebody earlier this morning, but, you know, in a pre-YouTube, pre-internet world where you had to either stay up and watch it as it's being broadcast or... VHS or DVR and some of that technology was there, but you didn't really, you wanted to be part of the conversation the next morning and that that sort of focus on that was what that I that's what I miss as much as anything is that collective sort of broadcast feel that had been part of that. And then you had newspapers basically reporting on what Jay did the night before and Dave was doing. And they were certainly the New York tabloids. The Post and the Daily News were, you know, Jay versus Dave as much as they could. And being part of that sort of energy was, for me, also just exhilarating.
1: I'm living vicariously through you right now. Because back then, my friends and I all wanted to be there so badly. Um, and, And you're right we live in this in this world that uh you know the instant streaming all of that the water cooler moment uh is 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 a lot more difficult to achieve it can happen um but it it's a very very different deal uh but back then yeah you wanted to be like you said you wanted to be part of that conversation and the moments that would happen did you see what happened on dave last night no yeah. oh, i missed it oh my god what happened like there was a lot of urgency there but again Shielded, like because it's like, OK, I've got I've got 100 friends around me and there's six of us that are like, this is the most important thing that is happening in the yeah. world right now. And you're trying to convey that. And it's very difficult to do that. I used to try that and convey jokes all of the time, uh, but it was these moments that would happen. Um, you know, I mean, I'm going to ask you about Eddie Vedder, of course, as part of this. Please, please, please remind me. Um, I, I just I, I don't there's one thing in prep that I wanted to make sure that I uh, asked you. Um, it was part of your, uh, <laughs> it was part of your staff favorite moment. You were the Mulholland and Barry of A.M.P.T. That line, that line made me laugh so hard. And that line is what this show is for. Uh, like, that is a fantastic line. What, what You were the Mulholland and Barry of?
0: Yes. So of the American Federation of Musicians, which actually yes. on that table, I said music. I don't know why. I mean, in the course of talking with Walter and Barbara, I I, I know the union is the American Federation of Musicians. And so uh, I'm glad I knew I was talking to about an audience of 75 to 100 on that. Yep. But um, I got a big chuckle out of Barbara Gaines. So it was all worth it for me. It was wonderful to hear her do that. And um, so yes. Yeah, so I, I'm there from 2000 from, sorry, 1993 until the very end of 2003. Yes. But I was the only one, I guess, silly enough to really have learned, or I, at some point I needed to learn because I was preparing the American Federation of Music, American Federation of Music Contracts. Yep. Um, M is what that was termed. Yep. Uh, so, and, you know, we're basically paying scale as a show. But I just would put, somebody had to put them together and somehow that sort of fell on me and I got that. And so I learned the the nuances and the variances. If they rehearsed at 11 a.m., it's this amount of money. If there was a rehearsal at 3.15, then this was the payment for everything. So I kind of knew that and nobody else there wanted to learn it. And so I, when I moved back to Nebraska, I realized I could do this remotely. <laughs> And uh, so I did until the very last show. I continued to be the American Federation of Musicians contract preparation person, and would get that all set up and take care of all of that. So Mulholland and Barry, as many people know, were comedy writers that were always based in Los Angeles and would fax in jokes all the time. And so you'd see these names, but and they there were Johnny's.
1: Ed- they were Johnny's writers, exactly. Yeah. Yes,
0: and and but nobody had ever really met them, and. <laughs> And again, they could have come by the show in New York, and I wouldn't have necessarily seen them, but I never knew them to ever be physically in existence there at the Ed Sullivan Theater, but yet on every listing of monologue jokes and everything else, they were there. So that was, you know, they were, they were remotely just a big part of the show, and so I tried to sort of tie myself in that I was sitting there cranking out AFM contracts remotely, similar to Mulholland and Barry. You did it right to 2015? I went up to the very last show with the American, with the, with the contract pieces. So you were in
1: New York until Oh three, but associated with the show right to the very end. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Oh man. I'm glad we're making that distinction today. Um, and then also like you talk about the audience of what, whatever I want to get into the nooks and crannies of things. So like, like you talking about the bands, these little nuances, that fascinates me. Um, (laughs) like I, 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 you know, I'm that guy. It says a lot about me, I guess. Uh, but A band would, um, okay, so I'll get into this now. I was planning on getting into it anyway. Um, When a band would come in, um, every member of the band would not get paid. It was the same amount, whether it's a solo artist versus a band coming in, right? Here's how the split went for that. So if you did, if you performed vocally... Yes. You were
0: paid through AFTRA, which at that okay. time was not combined with SAG, but it was the yep. American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. Yep. So if you if you sang or did backing vocals, they paid you through AFTRA. Yeah. If you just performed on an instrumentation, then we paid you through the American Federation of Musicians. Right um and and the scales were a little bit different on those but that was sort of how the split went but you're right we never there was never any negotiating with a band to say hey we're going to give you two thousand dollars for this appearance uh and in the back and forth it was known that if you were appearing and this was for after too that it was just scale and that's i think one of the great Traditions of these, well, not great, but one of the traditions of these late night shows, going back to, I suppose, Pat Weaver coming up with the Tonight Show, right? Yeah. Uh, is that it was a promotional vehicle. So we won't pay to have these, this talent on there, but we'll just give them the base union scale.
1: And thank goodness, because it ain't the Super Bowl, but some of the moments are just as, you know, just as, as groundbreaking from a right musical standpoint. Right. But yeah, it's a level playing field. I love that. So, Ah, uh, just to just to drive this one last point into the ground and get people hitting stop. If Green Day shows up, you got Billy and you got Trey. Uh, get paid the same? Don't get paid the same, even though they're part of the band. Getting paid this um, with the after scale was maybe like.
0: more Okay. or, I mean, it was pretty close. But different sources. Yes. And then to make things even more complicated of the musicians that were on the American, the AFM contract, you'd have to designate a leader, even though that wasn't really truly a band leader, but they would get double scale. And there's, so there was all kinds of crazy nuances in that contract. Um, And so again, I, I at some point learned the booklet, yeah. And uh, knew the nuances so I could kind of get those together and, and keep it pretty accurate.
1: Oh, that's very, very neat. Um, I love, I did not know that you did it all the way to 15. That's that's uh, that's really cool. Uh, you know, even after you left, you were seeing, you know, you get a call sheet or whatever, whatever it was, whatever mechanism it was, letting you know who was coming on the show and all of that kind of stuff. I assume through Sheila's office or something, you'd be yeah getting... email,
0: and yeah. then Dan Feder, who kind of took my job over there. Dan would keep the the stuff coming from me, and then I'd work with the business office. So Pat O'Keefe and I think Paula Shigaris was still there and stuff too. And ultimately, we were kind of faxing and emailing and doing some scanning as the technology sort of continued to get better. Uh, we were trying to utilize that a little bit more.
1: And, I think at fan, one point oh, I might have even know. been
0: mailing some finished contracts <laughs> <laughs> each week. Uh, but I think luckily the digital technology got good enough, fast enough that uh, we could get to the emails and, and everything else pretty easy.
1: Um, as the enthusiast of the show, though, seeing moments that are coming up, that must have excited you. One of my very first questions I was going to ask you, now we can kind of get around to it. Uh, you're in Nebraska you know, this this uh radio TV grant or program shows up, whatever. Were you a music fan before you showed up at Letterman? Uh I was, I was. Uh, you know, I spent I joke
0: that I didn't have much of a social life. So I spent a lot of time listening to the radio and and it was radio. I mean, yep. uh, and I'd go out and buy CDs and Um, I'm hesitant to always say this because some of my some of the late show friends know this, but I might have had this sort of mobile DJ service when I was in high school and college (laughs) and we'd go around and play high school dances and uh, college dances. And so, uh, you know, I knew I was I was living in the top 40 for a while. Oh, my God. Um, But here's the the lessons that I learned, though. So I thought that I had a pretty good sense of current popular music.
1: Yes. But oh, then yeah, you go you see Paul.
0: and you get into what I call the master's world, which is Paul's head and his knowledge. And and, you know, goes back to the 60s. And, of course, the Phil Spector sort yeah. of wall of sound that nobody in the world to this day can recreate like Paul could in yes. getting that, you know, making a live piece of this thing that was only really supposed to happen in the studio. Yes. Just so phenomenally. And so I had a lot of learning still to do. I thought when I came in that I knew popular music, but boy, and his knowledge of just songs and Songs that weren't necessarily, you know, again, in the top 40. So it wouldn't have been on that mainstream AM and FM that I had been listening to. Yep. Uh, there, there was a lot of learning curve for me from that. But boy, he he
1: knew all of that. I'll tell you this. I love talking to people like that. Um, and and I, we've had Will on the show. I talked to Will quite a bit. And I feel like because guys like that are so they're like you say, they're so far down the rabbit hole. And, and I love music to always have loved music to be able to even just hang in a conversation. Like we had Harvey uh, Goldberg on, yeah. I mean, to be able to hang with people like that in conversation, there's an element of it though, where they are just kind of like a cat playing with a, with a rubber ball because their knowledge is so vast. And And if they'll even let you talk music with them because they're just so far down and they, they, they know the mechanics of it. They know right down to the, you know, Oh, this person played on this in the studio for this part. Like they just are so uh, their, their knowledge is vast. Being able to even hang with them in a musical conversation is incredible. That what an education you got. That is
0: amazing. Oh yes. And some of it trial by fire, uh, you know, in a good way, of course, but yeah, to, to really be there and, and watch Paul be able to work and the rest of the band guys be able to work and, and then, you know, it, it would have been up in the office. And sometimes there were so many outside sort of gigs, too, that we were involved with all of the yeah. Hall of Fame shows. Yeah. Um, those guys, that CBS Orchestra group really became the go to backing band for anything and everything. So yep. concert for New York City after 9-11, they were the the house band for that. Um, And and especially the Hall of Fame shows, Paul was was very involved in working with kind of what the musical selection should be for the nominees and everything else. And to hear him just sort of work that through with the other producers was just amazing to watch him be able to sort of talk about and say, this is going to be great on stage. And this group, this is really represents who they, they, they were and things like that.
1: Um, I love that we're talking about this. Uh, yeah. And for those who, who want to know more about that, uh, Paul's book really does uh, shed a lot of light onto the rock and roll hall of fame stuff. The next time I have him on, I'm going to, I want to go into that a little bit more and, and, and talk, um, those amazing moments. And I mean, again, you're just to put the exclamation point on what you're saying, that band, I mean, when you consider the artists that they have worked with and the moments they've been a part of, I don't know that there are other, like I said this to Will the other day, I don't know if there are other musicians um, on this planet that have been more involved with big artists, big moments, and also little ones too that people don't even know about necessarily. You go and watch Paul and and Will perform at the Bitter End with Oz Noy in in, in New York, like all these little moments too. I don't know that there are musicians other than those seven or eight that have been involved more than them. Um, It's just incredible And at such a breakneck speed, and then the other part that um, this is, I've said this many, many, many times. I would love to expand and have a second podcast called Live on Letterman. Because the business end of things, especially near the end of, of late night TV, they weren't even looking at some of these musical moments as, they weren't even checking the ratings on them and things like that because taste had spread so much. But when you're a music fan and you see all of these amazing moments that are just getting, for lack of a better term, thrown away because it's a new show tomorrow night and all of that. Yeah. And it's the last segment. These are some really important things, some played by extremely important musicians, uh, musical history in many ways. And this is the stuff that I think we need to revisit. So, so, you know, I think I've got a to- brother in that <laughs>
0: you know? yes yeah and 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 it's in you talk about the band and it's that range that they yes. were so amazing and you're so right that breakneck speed yep. and when we would bring in subs or have to have somebody else in I think they were always surprised at wow how fast this comes together and Paul would often say I would hear him say that Saturday Night Live was actually less live in a lot of cases than Letterman because they had gone through a full dress rehearsal and there'd just be much more rehearsal opportunity and late show was just felt live because it was that you had very little time rehearsal wise. And then of course, anything could happen it was going to go any direction that dave was going to go and you better be ready for all of that and of course paul was that's where his genius was was being able to take those areas and dave goes off on something and be able to just ad lib at any time at a moment's notice
1: uh either musically or comedically and and uh you did you did a really good job on your on your um uh, staff favorite moments kind of tributing that. And I I love that. And there's so much meat on that bone um, that, that's going to be explored, you know, as as, uh, you know, this Letterman retrospective stuff that that is coming out on the official channel. Um, you know, covered. Yeah, let me because I'm going to add a little
0: more because it really and I, I don't I can't just emphasize this enough that Paul had the hardest job in all of show business. Uh, because you, when you think about it, so A, he's gotta have the greatest, tightest band in the world that plays with anybody every time. Great. That's enough for one person. That's a full-time thing right there. Yeah. Then, oh, you also need to be able to riff with Dave and play that sidekick role perfectly, which is in itself so hard because you either have you got to know when to sit back and not take the spotlight, but also, be ready with an incredible line to help save something when things are just not working out very well. And his ability to do that night after night after night is just, again, so phenomenal and so amazing.
1: And then never mind the fact that later on, the show behind the show, which I love talking, I love talking about the show behind the show. And they're they're funny. They're reluctant to talk about it. Some of the things that he would say into the microphone that the band would hear only. <laughs> right, I, I love it. You never had an earpiece for that, did you? you never- no, I was not on that <laughs> monitor system. So okay. I did not
0: hear all of that. But then again, think of the logistics. So yes. in his ears, he's got band talking to him, plus Dave's audio that he has to absolutely be. And he's got to watch... Because, you know, Dave's peripheral vision was very, he was focused on the whole thing. So if there was too much movement, or if Dave did not feel like Paul was paying attention to the actual show, even though he's trying to prep the next break or get something up and going, Dave would sometimes call him out on that at times too. So he had to walk this very, very thin tightrope all the time.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) So, yes, yes. He's a Canadian hero. There he is. Paul Schaefer. There's our. Yeah, boy there he right is. There. I, I knew you'd have, I knew that Will gave yeah, you. I, I brought mine in there as well. <laughs> My man. Um, you know, and, and he is, he's up here in Canada too. He's revered in so many ways. He's an Order of Canada uh uh recipient, which is the highest honor that a civilian can get in Canada. Um, he's just this, he's this amazing magnet of 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 just electricity and talent and all of these things. And so personable and so yeah. kind and just, yeah, I, he's just a, a wonderful, wonderful man. You got to be technically his assistant for this amount of time. Um, I got to ask, you know, your first, okay, you're going through the shakedown shows and all that. We could spend probably three or four podcasts just talking about the first six months of, 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 of uh, late show. Uh, but like I said, in the, as we were going back and forth, you know, our first one is building rapport and all that. We can start digging into the moments later. future episodes but i do want to know what a day was like so if you were there for after the shakedown shows we start getting a semblance of a schedule and some routine and all of that what time did you show up did the day stay fairly regular um and then we can talk about you know oddball things that you did afterwards or was it simply unpredictable between the hours of 10 a.m and 10 p.m or whatever it was that you were there (laughs) uh a, a mixture
0: of both okay um I think now in hindsight, there were several pieces of it that helped keep the rhythm and the routine daily, which is so vital to just getting that on the air. So when we started early on, I think the production meeting was at 11 a.m. And so I would be getting in around 10, 15 or 10, 30 um, and then, you know, do some, odds and ends and stuff like that, but then get into the production meeting. And I'm notating then everywhere that we need music. Now, obviously each show we know we're going to need bumper songs. We know the theme is going to be there, but play ons for guests. And then the real wild card was what music for comedy segments would we need? Yeah. So I would notate that entire rundown and, and make that and, you know, see where we needed stuff. And then I would get on the phone with Paul. And again, this is pre cell phone car phones, were a thing. So if he was driving, I could kind of reach him, but otherwise you better be ready to go. He's he'll call in when he has a chance someplace and you better be ready to go with the information. Right. Um. And then it was just kind of dealing with some odds and ends, but the show then would sort of change as the, the comedy segments would come in and Dave liked certain things and didn't want certain things. And so the music piece would sort of change from that. At that point, I think they were doing rehearsals at two o'clock for comedy stuff. So I'd sort of watch that a little bit and just sort of get a good sense of of what would happen. Yep. And then the band would start at 345. So I'd make sure around 330 that people were getting in and everybody was where they needed to be. Uh, And also, if there were changes or anything like that throughout the show that needed really extra prep from the band or something i'd be reaching out to them before also again pre-cell phone so a lot of beeper usage yeah um you know just trying to get seven people and and talk to them was a bit of a challenge always at that point yeah but the band rehearsal comedy rehearsal would end at three forty-five. And then we'd have the, the band would come on and they really only had 15 minutes for the cues portion of it, the play-ons yeah. for guests, um, and any, and any of the comedy music that they needed really 15 minutes. And then at four o'clock, then the feature band would come on. Right. And if the guys were working, if the CBS orchestra was playing with them, then they'd be part of that. Um, and sometimes it was just a feature band and then they would go and kind of do stuff. But I would then during that four o'clock hour, I was the somewhat notorious stopwatch runner because they were so adamant three and a half, three and a half, that three was a magic time for yep. what that length of song would be. And the producers did not want to budge early on with that. That got looser as the show went on, but initially it was three and a half and it was like don't kill the messenger, sorry, but yeah, <laughs> they did not want it to run. So I was the stopwatch runner on all of that. But four to five, and it was a hard out at five o'clock. The audience was going to come in. And again, it was treated like a live broadcast, which yes. in essence, then that's where I think was so important because you would have never, you never felt ready. And so you could drag it out until seven o'clock and keep an audience going and whatever, So 5 o'clock, doors would open, we're done, and you got to get ready because it's going to start. And so then the guys would go up and change. I would get final sort of notes from the producers on changes and get a revised rundown. Um, Then get the band down by around 5.15, 5.20. Um, then, you know, Eddie Brill or, you know, yep. uh, Wally, um, oh, I can't remember his last name now, the uh, warm up comic Thursday. though, whoever was doing the warm up. Oh, yeah, would, would do some stuff with the yep. audience and then bring the band out. They'd play two songs. We'd do the band first and then bring out Paul separately for the second song. Yep. So I'd go up and make sure he was ready to go and keep him time cued and everything as well. Yep. Um, and then Dave would come out for a short warm-up as well for what was a 5.30 on the dot start. Yep. And again, no budging on that. We started at 5.30. And, you know, it was painful at times because you were scrambling. But again, in hindsight, it was so important to keep that rhythm and routine because otherwise it does become like, I don't know when we're getting out of here. I don't know when we're going to be able to do that.
1: Also, the uh, energy of the show, like like you felt yeah. that. It, that. that That's where I think a lot of the crackling electricity of Late Show uh, came from was, was, was the, it's a big show and it's happening like it's live and if there are screw ups we're going to put the screw ups in there as much as we can especially if we can massage it or edit it right so it's uh, you know so it's comedic um you know and some things don't work out we're going to celebrate that um and 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 so yeah i, I think yeah, that that that, that live aspect of it of was sauce.
0: was so key for it yep. and um you know i think i think it loosened up maybe a little bit as as editing technology got better yep you know uh, certainly in the in the 90s there it was still some hard cuts and you know the, the digital technology was just not there so it it was a clear it was clear when you saw an edit and i think dave hated that sort of feel and look and it just it's not what you wanted to see no, so going live was vital just to eliminate as many of those as you could possibly do yeah. um and and then ultimately you could make it, it much more seamless and i think maybe they loosened up again i wasn't there for the tapings uh, after 2003 right. um but i i think still the spirit was there that we're going to tape this and it's going to be live and the first time i
1: saw the show live was in 04 and uh i was blown away by watching because you're you're in the audience and you're watching a segment happen and and it's funny both shows that I saw live uh both shows were after the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and there was no top 10 list because Dave uh decided to do a you know a monologue about how it was a a travesty that you know the world's most dangerous band of the CBS <laughs> orchestra wasn't a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and it was just it was um you know both shows and and I remember uh the first time I saw him in 04 you have to watch so carefully because it's like, okay, yeah, oh, I missed up on my words. Okay. yeah. no, we're just going to take it right from there. And then he restarts, and you don't even realize that that's going to be a, a an eight second cut in the show. Like it is seamless. They are going. They don't stop. Um it, it is a it is a real impressive piece of machinery. And
0: yeah, um, and as that technology got better, that became much easier to do. And I think Dave yeah. got comfortable of like, well, let's let's not we don't have to have everything be just raw as it was, we can, we can fix a few things. And I think that that feeling got better, but again, mostly because it was quick uh, and the audience did not have to sit there and wait for an extended period of time over yeah. all that thing. Uh,
1: it kept it going. And, and I mean, again, the, the, the temperature of the theater, I mean, people are shifting, like it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's excitement, it's energy. I love, I love that so much. Whenever I public speak in, in, in my office um, and it drives my, it drives my partners crazy. I keep the office really, really, really low in temperature. I'm like, you can put a sweater on, come on. You you know, if people are falling asleep, (laughs) you know, you're, you can't get that back. And that's what I I love that logic very, very much. Um, Okay. So I have to go back and again, everything that you said there, I could probably ask three or four dozen questions just on the little nuances, but your day Um, I guess there's an overarching question because you got to see the comedy rehearsal as well as the band. Re- like you were in the theater during that. Part? I was in okay. the
0: theater for a lot of it. And then, you know, it was on a feed throughout the building also. Okay. So I would have been so- either in the offices or on the stage, depending. Um, And, and then, but always looking and watching the comedy feed just to see what changes were happening.
1: Okay. And you and I are similar animals in our adoration for the show. Would love to see the behind the scenes because the behind the scenes stuff that made it on camera is the stuff that got us so excited. You know, Jerry Mulligan is just as big of a celebrity as as, yeah. as the biggest movie star. Did you have to turn your enthusiasm for the show? I've, I've talked to a bunch of people who off camera have told me this and it's come up a little bit on the show here. I feel like you and I can talk about this. Did you have to hide your enthusiasm for the show Because clearly as a fan, you are getting for 10 years, the ultimate experience (laughs) because you were there for the, not just the taping, but the rehearsals and all of that. And you were a part of it. Did you have to turn that part of you down? Because there is a, there is, especially with the writers, I will out some of the writers who have said this. um, There was definitely a sentiment of yeah, it's cool not to be a fan as much and I don't want to talk about that as much like there's a you know we had to turn that part down in being there even though inside there's a part of them that is jumping up and down for joy for being able to be part of it. it did that affect you at all or were you able to just kind of keep it that you No, were, uh... I
0: switched it completely off actually. I was just I was scared to death of 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 overstepping any bounds or anything like that. Um, I and so I shut it completely off. Um, and and um, you know, I was enjoying it at the time, but I knew that I needed to, it, I just felt like I got to be professional in all yep. of this. And oh, yeah, uh, you know, you they're big, big, wonderful celebrities who I'd been big fans of, and sure, you know, um, but you did not bother them and all of that piece. I'll tell you, the biggest thing I got one giant regret, and this was not even with the show. Um, but Dave, when the, when the Emmys would come out and the show was nominated, they would take the entire staff, fly them out to LA. And there was this wonderful dinner at Granita in Malibu on Saturday night before the awards. And it was so great. And this was probably early on. So this was probably 94, maybe 1994 Emmy, September Emmy's time of 1994, And Johnny Carson stops by Granita and has dinner with everybody. And, you know, you know, in your head, holy cow, this is legendary. Look at that. Two tables over. I've got Johnny Carson and David Letterman just eating and talking. And at some point, I wonder if they're going to take pictures. (laughs) And so the boulder of the staff got great photos with Dave and Johnny that night. I was not. That bold. Uh, I still felt relatively new. I certainly still felt green and like I'm still on shaky ground here possibly. So I did not push that. But uh, if I had one sort of memento from that time that I think "Ah, I should have stepped in there. I mean, there was a line. It wouldn't have even been that out of place. There were other people that were doing it. Um, but I decided, no, I better not. But that photo with Johnny and Dave would have just been legendary.
1: Oh, that's 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 incredible. Now, that part, I'm going to stay on this for one more second because that, yeah, part I'm of it... all over the map. I'm sorry about that. No, 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 no you're <laughs> great. This is fantastic. I love it like this. Um, and and I do have, you know, a basic structure in my head anyway, but 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 um, I do want to stay on this one point for a second because for me, too, like again, as as an enthusiast, the big movie stars to me okay that's great especially if it's somebody that I have adoration for or it's a big moment or something but for me when I was watching your staff favorite moments and one of the things that it talked about in it was your position where you got to see the show from so you're kind of sitting right near the Bill Murray doors right near the band there and all of that and you're watching the entire show unfold for you those are the moments where I try and put myself in your shoes where I would be like the the kid would just be like, okay, yeah, I'm being cool. I'm part, I'm, I'm, I'm professional, all of that. But it's like, Holy crap. I can't believe I'm, I'm, I get to see this every day. Like, never mind. you know, watching it every night when it shows up at 1135, you got to see it every single day. And, 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 uh, that's the part that I'm just like mind blown by that. You had that 10 years of, of, of that experience. Um, it seems like there was a lot of joy there and, 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 uh, I just I, I'm I'm grateful for you that you got to, <laughs> that you got to enjoy
0: that. Yeah, thank you. Uh some of my my greatest friends are were part of that show and you know and looking back and again I was so young and so naive and again hadn't really had other workplaces to compare it to but right. just the the uh, and and you're getting such a good sense of of just the so many great great human beings that found themselves here working for that show and to yep. be able to be part of that group uh it was just amazing and and while i did shut off had to shut off the fan piece of it a little bit yep. i did try to as i mentioned savor every day and i did realize that my my casualness really of the ed sullivan theater uh so you were talking about I sort of stayed it was right off from the drum kit and kind of behind Will and by the Bill Murray doors but there was a sliding door right behind the drums that would then lead into what was called the airlock which is where the green room was and all of that space there and my ability to just sort of even during the show as needed sneak in and out of there and just have that I just you know was like hey this is great and then those tunnels between the stage area and the office space too, and navigating that basement and being part of that was like, wow, this is really cool.
1: Did you, you would have ridden the freight elevator, wouldn't you?
0: Um, (laughs) Paul didn't always stay after and go. So I didn't always, so sometimes George, and that was George Clark running that thing. Yeah. yeah, So uh, sometimes he would do that uh other times then i I'd, I'd march up the stairs to the regular elevators to, I
1: got you.
0: <laughs> to get um, back up we were on eleven is where uh our our offices were on the eleventh floor so that would have been segment producers are up there the research space is up there the talent bookers were all in the on that floor also
1: okay um where did you spend most of your, the majority of the time of your day? Were you in those offices or were you in the actual theater itself? Mostly
0: offices. Um, yeah. and, and again, early on, because the phone and, and being where the phone was, right was where I needed to be able to answer the phone because I didn't know when the people who I needed to get information to were going to call. I couldn't necessarily get information out to them. Yeah. So the office was really the space for most of that. Now, we had great receptionists and they could get, there was a backstage phone and stuff like that, but ultimately it was the offices then until rehearsal and then back and forth. So early part of that offices and then mid-afternoon, then down in the stage area.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, and you're Paul's guy. If Paul needs something, you're the guy that 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 helps to execute that and make it happen. Correct, um, correct. But I'm curious to know the bridge that's built between acts that are coming on the show, and there's going to be a special moment. Um, you know, I have to ask about Eddie. I okay, we're gonna ask about Eddie Vedder first because yeah, I remember being at home. You talk about me and my band teacher trying to convert the rest of the band. The Eddie Vetter moment is one that is clearest in my memory. So you got Dave for, I don't know how long it was, weeks, singing Black. And he's singing the, the end of Black, uh, Pearl Jam's Black. And it's, you know, um, it's, it, it's fantastic that he's trying to call these musicians out. Um, and then suddenly Eddie does a walk-on, sings with the band playing, you know, playing Black, sings that last part, hands the microphone away and then leaves and then leaves. And it's this crazy, awesome moment. I'm curious, when that happens, how are you involved with that? Is there? Yeah, yeah I, I assume you are. <laughs> uh, yes, yes.
0: Uh, uh, and, and lots of other people, of course, you know, sure, as well. Of course. Um, yeah. but and I I'll, want to talk, talk to talk them the- too,
1: so we can make that happen. Let's yeah. talk to those people too. But
0: Yeah, I'll talk about kind of the lead up to it. So Dave starts to just kind of sing, because I have a bit of an embarrassing story about the lead up. Dave starts to just kind of sing, you know, during the monologue and at the desk that. And I knew my Pearl Jam songs, but I wasn't, I couldn't have necessarily. And he was just doing that riff on it. And so the CBS Orchestra pretty much learned everything by ear. And I know you had Tom on and Tom was doing a ton of arranging. And As we sort of got into the horns, they would scratch out their own stuff. But a lot of what happened was still the old school where those guys were just drawing up. Sometimes we were called Nashville charts with chord progressions and things like that. But they were just doing their own stuff. So my role in a lot of cases was there was a CD player in the back. And if you see some of the shows, you'll see it sits there. It wasn't professional. It was a consumer model. Yep boombox style sort of thing portable cd player and a lot of what my role was was to have those cds ready to go so that in the ears they could hear some of that and paul had gotten that so he could play during the show if he needed a reminder of stuff so dave starts sort of singing this song and paul then says can you get that and so I run upstairs we have a whole big giant drawer of CD stuff upstairs and I and I run upstairs and I grab that and I so I know the album yeah but I don't know for the life of me what track he's actually <laughs> What song is that? I do not know. Oh and it's uh, the
1: end of it's the end of Black 2 so you're not necessarily going to see that if you go through all of 10. Yes, I had gone yeah. <laughs> through there.
0: So who saves me and you had him on Tommy Ruprecht was working research He knew that album backwards and forwards, and he luckily guided me on there. Um, (laughs) But then you're right. It's like, well, where is that point on there? And at the beginning, Paul's trying to listen, and I'm going, oh, please, let's just find this so we can do it. So the band had gotten familiar with that song because Dave had been singing it, and luckily... I figured out which track it was. And so they had been sort of comfortable, but then at one point, and I'm sure this came through Sheila uh, and they said, Hey, we're going to have Eddie Vedder come in and do this. And so they would try to do a quick rehearsal in those 15 minutes. So even for things like that, it's still within that very tight window of time. And so Eddie would have come out and again, I'm going off memory. So, Uh, not under oath here. If I mistake mistake it to any late show people, I'm sorry, but this is how my memory is, how it happens. Uh, (laughs) But we would rehearse that and him coming through and doing all of that just within that tight 15 minutes and kind of work that out and which section and how that's going to go. And Eddie, here's where you're going to kind of stand and you'll come through those doors. And it really is as tight and as quick as that. And I think, and I feel like that kind of came together. If my memory serves right, somewhat, last minute being the day of or something like that, that we didn't, we didn't have it on any sort of prep tapes that I would have distributed or anything like that. Yep. Um, it was sort of, hey, this is going to happen this day. So be ready. And then we had that tight 15 minutes to try to work with him in addition to all the other cues. Yep. And, it, and it came together just as in some ways, as hard, but yet as simple as that
1: it's such a for those of us uh those of you out there who want to know a little bit more about this uh on don gillers i'm almost positive it's on don gillers channel uh there's a there's um a compilation of eddie talking about those moments and then he interlaces the moments on the late show uh all leading up to it too including like for what seems like weeks uh dave just singing that riff at the end of black and just singing it and then finally eddie coming on and and how it led up to it and all that, uh, including there's a part where Eddie's actually saying, I was a fan of the show and I would watch it. And then there's this one point where Dave, you know, starts talking into the camera and saying, Eddie, Eddie, come here. And and he, he said he was at home and it was really freaking him out. Um, just like, yeah. And in great, that great- course of
0: time, they're there as a band, just getting white hot, you know, exactly. I mean, they'd had some success, but the the album is now just exploding everywhere and they're just, they're, they're every place white hot. So it was just a, a great sense of the timing of it was just wonderful as well.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's where, you know, Dave inducts Pearl Jam into the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, you have the, the Foo Fighters had just broken at that point, too. And I mean, this is where Dave, a lot of people who know that Dave loves the Foo Fighters. It was because this was a time. And, and I think I would throw Late Show and what you guys were doing in on this. Music had completely changed. You know the alternative revolution had come up, and 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 for lack of a better term, grunge. Although that 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 term is so, um, such a whitewash term. It's 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 not. It wasn't just grunge, but music was changing, and 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 so too was entertainment. You guys were a part of that. I think I think the two were married to each other. You know, I think of the moment of, you know, White Zombie, uh, um, which I think the band actually played on that track with white zombie, which is I do
0: too. I have that memory of that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I mean, I, I remember there being an extra part with Paul playing a keyboard part, do it. And it was like, Holy cow. Cause the song was great. But then when the band would come in and accent these major types of, you know, major uh, musical acts that, that wouldn't have been popular eight or nine years before, maybe even two or three years before, because everything was shifting. Um, you were, yeah man it was so cool that you were a part of that. I feel like I'm starting to get. Giller's going to tell me that I'm Chris Farley right now saying, "Oh that was so awesome when." But it was so awesome <laughs> when you had these moments. Um well the now, musical pieces
0: you're exactly right and it did yeah. change and and you know Sheila was so good at really finding these amazingly amazing acts just before they were breaking and right? and and really pegging that and then You know, but Hal and Jerry, they shot it beautifully, you know, Mike Delug and Harvey Goldberg and the music. I mean, there was a real commitment to making that music segment great when a lot of other shows just don't want to put the investment into it and it becomes a throwaway sort of piece. And it it was a very vital part of that. And I think it all stems from Dave's just love of music and and being there so close to these live acts and, and that really being one of the most enjoyable parts of the entire show for him. And it all kind of led from that piece, but it was this team that really could put together great, great music. And then knowing for Sheila, that no matter what happened, Paul and the band were this amazing backup. So again, some bands would come on and they could just work independently. Other times though, she knew that she could book anybody and they would make that work. And as hip hop, got larger and you were working with tracks but paul's commitment to keeping stuff live and again taking stuff that was only designed to be in the studio and making a live performance whether it was phil Spector or ll cool j or other hip-hop acts he just was a master at that
1: oh man i could not agree more and and i i'm a hip-hop guy too so i love watching i love that dave gets i i call it a pass or whatever you want to call it into the land of hip-hop so many hip-hop artists love him so much my theory it's because he embraced it early on and he let you know he helped promote the genre when the genre was was coming up just like you know these these uh the, the alternative movement as well um yeah like i think about when the beastie boys were on and they came in you know i mean again that's a band that you could pretty easily just have a dj play the play the track but they never did that i mean sabotage was a little bit different because they you know they were playing their instruments for that song anyway but like when they came and did the uh the entrance from the subway with that yeah was that after your time or were you were you there for that uh
0: boy i'm trying to remember some of these have become so ingrained from the video that i can't Exa- remember yeah <laughs> yeah so i would have to check the date on that i feel like i was there for it but yeah. i'm not sure if the dates actually uh actually coincide or not but so good and that willingness to to do that and just be open to what can we take a step further? And, you know, I always tell people, Late Show was the first one to do the outside concerts. So the 53rd Street concerts were well before the Today Show and Good Morning America were doing any of those. It It was Dave... And Late Show turning New York City into a playground that then opened up all the other changes with Total Request Live. I mean, there was a time during the 90s when you could just bounce between broadcasts in New York, and it was great, but you'd be at 53rd and Broadway and see Late Show and then go down to Total Request Live uh, down Broadway, and then Good Morning America moved into their space on Broadway, and the Today Show had the plaza and stuff like that. But I think, really, Late Show was the predecessor of all of that, and I'm sticking to it. Whether or not Uh, that's accurate or not, I don't know, but I'm holding to that. (laughs)
1: So, so okay, I'm... i uh... The VMAs are like a religious experience for me, not so much now as they were back in the day, um, because one of the things that I loved about that is that they would have these big moments and 90% of it, 95% of it was no lip syncing, especially at the beginning of it. Um, The live musical experience is something that I love. When Harvey was on here, he talked about how that feeling when you're at a concert, there's a certain feeling there that you don't necessarily get on a studio album. And, And his job was to kind of merge the two I loved that analogy and that that description of things, um, and the thing that I love about Dave is his standard is so high. Um, you know, when 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 the best guests that he had are the ones that are preparing for their appearance two weeks beforehand. You know, they're they're shooting something or they've got you know an anecdote or a story or or something with them where they're really really thinking about it. Uh, the musical part of late show, and this is why I want to do live on Letterman because I don't think that point that you just made gets enough credit i think uh, you know the fact that they had a high expectation and we're not just going to have tv on the radio even though tv on the radio are awesome we're going to have tv on the radio on the fire escape playing and 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 it's not a matter of oh yeah are they going to lip sync how much of it's going to be processed or what no 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 we have a very high expectation that the performance is going to be very very good uh you know just regina specter just playing with a piano or, or or james blake coming on and doing all of his looping live like really really big stuff uh, and then of course the guys like paul mccartney on the marquee and things yeah, like that as yeah. well i mean uh, there must have been moments okay now that i know that you were associated with the show officially from 03 to 15 there must have been moments that you would have seen that you're that you would have said oh i it'd it'd be cool to be there for that one.
0: Yeah. Well, McCartney was, was probably top of that list. Yeah, You know, I mean that he had always been a dream get uh, through all the years that I had been there as well. And, you know, the marquee comedy, music, everything. One of the great things about late show too, was if you could dream it, then a lot of cases you could do it. Uh, And I think Rodney Rothman probably talks about that from the comedy standpoint that I got to get him on a lot of limitations They were willing to put some budget out for stuff and ultimately, you know, within reason, but ultimately, if it seems like a cool thing to do, then we're going to do it. And that culture permeated through everything. So the marquee had been sort of this, could you perform? What would that be like? Yeah. Um, Now, the city was willing to close down 53rd Street without a lot of pain but they didn't like to close down Broadway. (laughs) That was got, that better be big. And that ultimately (laughs) I think drove sort of, Hey, this better be big. And we got to wait to do a big marquee thing on there. Uh, It was because yeah, the city was not wanting to shut Broadway all the way down 53rd street. No problem. Great. Let's do that. But uh, if you wanted to shut down Broadway, better be something big.
1: The first time I remember the marquee being utilized, I don't know if it's true or not. I, I, but the first time I remember it was Regis and Dave smoking cigars, uh, on the on the marquee. I think that's the first time maybe it was utilized. I could be wrong. Don, will, I'm certain, correct. Me yeah, and that, they but- and
0: there was maybe one other. Yeah, we need Don's on this. Uh, there was maybe one other band even before McCartney did it that may have done that. I feel like Rage Against the Machine was someplace that they shut down oh. Broadway. But I don't know if that was on the marquee or under the marquee. Yeah. Um, But I don't remember that. Because ultimately, what they had to do as well was bring some other load-bearing
1: holes yeah, yep.
0: to make sure that you could get all of that weight out there. And so that became a whole other construction project also.
1: Um we got to switch over now to, to how much you were on screen. Cause you were on screen a lot. You had a lot of on screen appearances, uh, in, in comedy bits and things like that. Uh, I've talked to many of the writers and, and asked them, you know, what was the secret to getting a staff member? Like which, which staff member would you choose? And there's all sorts of different, uh, reasonings. And many times it's random, many times it's, it's, that was the closest person's, Hey, get in here. That kind of a thing. Um, how freaked out were you the first time? Was it was it on a microphone? Uh, uh, you know, for a for a, a a letter segment or something like that, where you're on microphone and Dave's saying, "What's your name?" and you are asking him a question. Was that the first time you were on camera?
0: No, thank goodness. Because who asked for it? Who asked for it was the most stressful one you could possibly <laughs> do. But as you may have heard me say uh, in the in the course of the union payments, it was also yeah. the most lucrative. Because if you could break five lines, then you would get moved up to that principal payment. And that was a nice extra amount of money. (laughs) Plus you got residuals and all of those things. So who asked for it was the best. But (laughs) I think my very first appearance was in the backdrop of the stage. And it was just a group of pedestrians walking past Dave behind the desk. Um, And then there was...
1: Hold on. And, Do you call mom and dad when that's happening? Are you like mom, i, I did actually yeah okay.
0: yes yeah. yes Yes. Um I I did because that was super exciting for me, He yeah. just never knew if you were going to get it again. Um, And then I think the second one was, I they dressed me up a a Domino's pizza outfit, a <laughs> a stretch limo. It must have been Bill Clinton was in New York. And hey, do we have any shots of him? You know, the city's been closed down because the president's in town. And then cut to me running down 53rd Street behind a stretch limo with a pizza, handing that off, and then coming back with money and uh, that shot. So that
1: I bu- think those the, are the Bubba days, right there when they. It, call that exactly
0: Bubba. was it, and that yeah. was all pre-taped. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, and I think behind was live, but it wasn't super stressful, but, uh, then the, who asked for it and things like that, uh, were able to come, but that, those were the best because you yeah. could get that back and forth with Dave. And again, the goal was you made up your character. So you came up with a fake name, a fake story and all of that. And I don't know this for sure. This was just always in my mind and sort of late show lore, yeah. but Dave wanted to see how good you'd thought through your story and see if he could trip you up. And the first couple of times, it was just nerve wracking. (laughs) Ultimately, again, again, this was the wonderful group of people that were there. I just decided, Hey, those, that band, they're on my side here. And look, there's Corky, a stage manager. He wants to, he wants me to succeed here also. And Dave, this is going to be fun and back and forth. And uh, anyway, those, those were great. Uh, Going back to how you got cast, I never knew. I never, (laughs) ever knew. So thank you to all the writers who put me in uh, spots. I had no idea why. You could never really lobby for it or campaign to be in it.
1: That was was also like not liking the show. It's kind of that same thing. Oh, no, I don't necessarily want to be on camera. Like, yeah. Yeah, if, that, if they felt there was that desire to be yeah. on camera,
0: then no, you can't do it. So you, you reluctantly took it and did it. But uh, I never figured out why or how I was cast. I, I got into a whole routine of rat sort of things. There was a, a New York Post photo from a Dunkin' Donuts where a mouse was crawling through the donut piece. And so we did this, this was another pre-taped bit, but we did this one where I'm a Dunkin' Donuts employee and Dave wants uh, two glazed and a mouse. And so I got to hold up this live mouse and do that. And then somehow this never saw air. So this is the worst of everything. You never get any payment for it. It was a pre-tape piece. But I'm laying in this circle of all of these rats Oh my and God, they're real. Yeah. And that was almost too much. I, that was the time where I thought, uh, uh-uh, I don't, I don't need to do this. That's okay. <laughs> and it didn't air. No, no. So there was no payment for it. I laid in this disgusting group of rats, uh, for about 20 minutes and, uh, got no- nothing for it. Oh,
1: God, that's so funny. So, the, okay. Let's go. The, the dominoes, uh, you're in a dominoes outfit. You're chasing after a limo. Obviously, it takes time for you to change into it, it takes time to set up the shot, it takes time to, so you're also Paul's assistant. Yes, yes. How do you, what are you missing to do that? And and is, was it just, you just got into a rhythm and you knew kind of where the, people knew where the holes were or was that uh, produced on a different day? And, no, and-
0: it was during the afternoon. And yep. so it was just letting people know where I was. And again, the grace of Paul, he yeah. never would step in when he knew there was an opportunity for additional as, as sometimes he'd call it, you can get some extra bread out of that. Oh, that's uh, and and he he would never step in the way of those opportunities. And he was always grace and kind uh, about letting people do that. Um, Obviously, I also had some intern help. So, you know, you try to use that piece. And then late in the show, um, we had a second person kind of in the office, also a paid person that was there. And that's how Dan Fetter started with me. Actually, he started as an intern, but then he was kind of the first, second assistant part of that. So there was a little more flexibility then to do some of those pieces. But you're right, early on, it was, please don't let there be a big thing that happens (laughs) and uh thank you paul for letting me be a part of this
1: um okay so we're going to go back to paul's kindness now for a second here because uh one of the things that i was just thrilled to learn and just it it just hit my heart and every time i think about it it hits my heart Uh, paul would you know you talk about royalties in music and again i want to pick your brain about this stuff too like oh my gosh and we're uh, yeah i can't wait to have you back on i can't wait to talk more about this stuff I want to pick your brain about uh, about the ins and outs of of, of musical, um, you know, being able to, to publishing and being able to play tunes and stuff because Paul would sometimes know that artists might be having a bit of a hard time and he would play their music on the show so they would get a payment. Um, you were part of that because you were part of the guy that you were, you, I assume that these checks that you would, would go out weren't just for the live acts. Were you part of it for the, Uh, Well, rights that you would use when
0: I did, I did the music clearance list. So we were treated as a live show. So we, the only things we ever sort of pre-cleared were bumper songs. Right. Um, Because then we just had this list of 200 songs that, Paul could look at and call out at any time. So we would pre-clear those. The network, CBS actually did the clearance. All of okay. the actual payments and stuff like that were handled through CBS. But I gotcha. would then do a Q sheet every night of exactly what was played and the length of time and all of that. And, and then send it over. S- submit that. Yes. Okay. And um, then Paul was one of the things that he learned very early through his Saturday Night Live experience was even the smallest song that's on there, register that because shows could last for 50 years in repeats and and you want to have that music at least helping to bring some income so he was always great and and sharing that with the band also just for the quick little comedy songs and stuff that would be written we and then I would help with the registration of that through Paul was in CSAC S-E-S-A-C was the performing rights agency that he was involved in but ASCAP BMI and stuff like that so I would also assist with registering those those songs in there and getting those attached then to the proper publishing and and yeah. composers
1: um so sweet that he would play you know people's music just to get them a, a check and things like that i just i i adore that uh you were part of that process that's just that's that's beautiful it's such a genuine um act of kindness you know for a fellow musician that uh i just i i adore that, that that's such a yeah. great thing um Okay, so we'll go back to comedy stuff that that you did. Uh, you worked a lot with Alan Calter, um, and and I mean, again, you know, when when Shecky and I were talking about this show here, you know, you know, he said to me, "Well, it's too bad, Alan. Alan, Alan is the kindest man in the world. He just talked about how kind Alan was. He goes, Alan would come on your show twenty times. He would do whatever. He'd do the voiceover for your show if you yeah. wanted. He was just such a sweet, sweet man. And any time I have an opportunity to talk to somebody who worked with him directly at all. I, I always bring up his name and, and and you worked with him a lot.
0: I did. Uh, luckily, you know, again, the, he became a go to for so many comedy segments and they just knew that it was going to be gold uh, every time. And yep. you could write. And I, I think Carter or Craig or, you know, I had mentioned about this, too. Um, you could write anything. And the more ridiculous it was, the more he'd commit to it. <laughs> And, and, and so just to watch that happen and his commitment to all of that, but then off of that, just the nicest guy in the world would do anything for anybody. And as a guy who at one point thought, Hey, maybe voiceovers would be my future, uh, a, a guy that could really do it and watching him work and how just brilliant he was with that microphone and getting that sound going was, was yeah. amazing.
1: A master at his craft, yeah. Um, and, and oh, I, I'm gonna note this out right now. Again, I, the one thing I love about this show is the uh, the intangible when things just organically kind of connect to each other between guests and things. Last week we had our boy Chris Harris on. Um, a g- phenomenal writer, awesome guy, and and I asked him about some of the things that he he did maybe an extra or two or whatever, and he said, "Oh, there's one that I'm really really proud of," um, and it was the it was the 1-800 collect. The the saving private, private ryan, ryan mashup yes. and 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 i said to him i said i know it's in Don's tribute to alan but i pretty i'm almost positive it's also on the uh someone's staff favorite moments or something and then prepping for you it's like yeah that was a, you were in that and and uh chris is very proud of that that was a boy the production on that for that one joke to meld those two things together and 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 it gets gets more ridiculous and more ridiculous. Was that the most um, uh, produced segment that you were that you were a part of? Yes, yes, uh, okay. by a long ways
0: actually. So yeah, I was going to say that was then. <laughs> Yeah, so early on, again, we're taping Monday through Fridays. And then at some point in, I can't remember exactly the year, 95, maybe 96, we go to two shows on Thursday and using Friday for kind of those pre-tape remote days, much had been similar to what that NBC schedule had been. Absolutely. So this was a Friday shoot. (laughs) And we went up to Inwood Park, which is very northern tip of Manhattan. And um, it is raining cats and dogs and it does not let up and jerry is in there with chris harris ready to go because they this is going to be spielberg for them (laughs) (laughs) and there's pyrotechnics and all of this stuff ready to go and meanwhile it just continues to rain and rain and there's not we didn't have trailers or anything like that no. to escape to. We're just standing out there getting poured on. I'm carrying. I had actually forgotten until Walter put the clip on that I did have those that yeah. fake meat that was supposed to be my guts in there. So I'm holding on to that as well. There's not even a place to sit that any place to set that down. And and ultimately we we run through it several times and then all right we're going to do it with the pyrotechnics. Here we go. Yeah. And by this point three hours, three and a half hours have gone. And I just remember I am shaking uncontrollably. And I feel like Randy Grosak was out there also as a a director, Uh, but she starts to get worried for me because I mean, I'm just shaking uncontrollably. Um, And uh, anyway, we shot it and it happened, but I'd never been that cold and wet to the bone. And there's a, there's a shower so felicia's dressing room was on the seventh floor of the stack in the dressing room area and then there was another just shower that anybody could use and sue hum i got out of those clothes and sue says go in there and take a shower and i stood in there under that hot water for about 45 minutes and just tried to but that wasn't even the end of the production that's the only time we ever did audio overdubs so uh, be- between all the pyrotechnics and everything else, not all of that audio was extremely clear. Yep. So we go down into the music room and do audio overdubs, which I'd never done before and haven't really done since, I don't think. Uh, but yeah, that was heavily produced, but great and funny and uh, just, just a you know, what an experience.
1: Yeah. Oh, and it was so good. And I'm glad it came up Again, I'm glad it came up organically talking to Chris about it. He was very, very proud of it. And and it is, it was, it was fantastic, but it was over the top. If I do get Jerry on here, I really want to get Jerry on here so badly. Such a nice guy. Um, you know, I want to talk to him about that too, because I mean, my word running from place to place, you know, all of the things, the edit, that guy there, you want to talk about somebody who had all these hats on yes. and was able to do this stuff to be able to be a, a director and never leave the studio or the theater in this case is a tremendous thing, but to be able to actually go and do extras the way that he did. And, and, and some of the other stuff that, I mean, absolutely, again, it's jaw dropping what you guys did. Um, I don't think that there is a show that works as hard, um, as, as, as you guys did back then and, and, and did as as well as you did. Um, do you have time for one or two more here? Do we have a, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. I just want to be very, very, um, I don't want to piss you off because i want you to come back Chris, this <laughs> i'm having a blast so mike i'm having a blast thank you <laughs> um okay so again i'm gonna go back to rehearsals for a second here because you actually got to see dave i think in his entire run of doing rehearsals live like being actually on the stage and seeing that and i think it stopped after 9 11 i think is when it is when that uh, seems about right
0: up. or heart surgery i can't remember which yeah. one for sure mm-hmm um but it was it was around that time but no he the the early ones he was down there um and he would sometimes so if they were going to do a phone call segment yeah we're gonna do something we're gonna call a payphone or something like that they'd really just want to test the phone at the desk to make sure so he would often do prank calls oh test the exactly phone call I was gonna, okay yes yes <laughs> and and you know some of the characters that i mean you've probably seen the tom snyder stuff when he would call into tom snyder and he was the love that you know the the uh the gravel uh oh. you know i would haul rocks and gravel and and that yep. sort of thing and he'd call zoos and anyway so you'd get that sort of he'd call pranks to do that sort of thing um of course the catching the football uh you know he'd play catch with Walter was the designated sort of you know football guy and uh they'd they'd play catch on there and then go through the stuff and make sure it was all working it was it was somewhat laid back in there with him you know um and just kind of go through if it was an art card piece you know just making sure that everything was set and he'd sometimes do some editing during that time but it was it was somewhat laid back through most of that or at least now again i i can't speak jude brennan barbara they may have different ideas of how sure. laid back it was or not i was <laughs> in and out of there but um for me it seemed like it was and then you'd walk in and they're testing the phone and dave's doing a prank call and you thought oh this is just gold
1: yeah I, I well okay so this is why because uh i don't know if you watched conan much or not i i my my golden age of 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 late night tv was watching letterman i'm in the west coast so I watch them at 830 because uh, I get uh-huh. the East Coast feed. So so, And then I would watch Ferguson and Conan depending on uh, which order, but it didn't matter. Conan on his, his TBS show, they made an entire show where they would put out, if it was a Friday show or whatever, that was just pre-tapes of rehearsal footage of Conan just sitting behind his desk during the rehearsals and stuff. And there was so much comedy there because of the laid back nature of it, because the host was screwing around between you know camera shots being set up or or whatever and um and i've heard there were a lot of funny moments um that that you know obviously there's going to be funny moments you're rehearsing the show but i heard there were a lot of very very cool moments during the rehearsal that helped bond you all as a team and create all of these things and isn't it yeah i think you could have easily
0: put that style of show together with dave no question from those rehearsals. yeah Yeah.
1: i was gonna say like as letterman enthusiasts. How great would that be? I, I mean, I want to see some of this cutting room floor stuff, the extras that never made it. But that energy there when Dave was down in rehearsal, uh, that must have been a lot of fun to be a part of.
0: Yeah. And and of course, you know, you've heard this from lots of people. It, it was a volume industry. It was a volume show. I mean, it was a lot of comedy material each day that would then get you know into a a little teeny tiny funnel (laughs) yeah exactly so there was always some great stuff that hit the comedy you know that hit the cutting room floor um just all kinds of yeah pieces in there and then just the ad lib sort of waiting around for other technical stuff to happen let's do something funny sort of pieces that would happen during that space too
1: um okay I uh, I want to do a commercial for Rupert first, and then I've got a couple more questions. Uh, that's that's kind of what I have in my head to kind of finish off here. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This has been so much fun. Yeah, um, absolutely. But uh, so let's, okay, so the, the thing after the commercial for Rupert, um, are there any moments that you had kind of thought about that you wanted to talk about today here? And then I've got a couple questions for you to kind of take us out. But uh, the Letterman Podcast has we have one sponsor, we have one sponsor only, and that is Rupert G and the Hello Deli. Um, go to hello deli.com if you want to get yourself a late show mug, a late show t-shirt, hat, Rupert merchandise. Get your Rupert merchandise. I know what's ha- the sale is happening. Okay, so and I know that the deli is going to be uh, changed forever when the when the sale happens. I think I can say that out loud without uh, without getting anybody in trouble. Um, so go to hello-deli.com and grab your stuff. Cause this is one of those things where three or four years from now, people are going to be saying, Oh, you know what? I wish I would have gotten that Rupert t-shirt or that late show t-shirt while it was there. Hello-deli.com. Uh, you were there 10 years. And I mean, I know for a fact that you just love Rupert and May. Um, they're going away. Do you want to say a congratulations? They watched the show here. So
0: yes, absolutely. To both of them who were so wonderful to me. And you talk about, you know, I mentioned I'm a kid fresh from the Midwest and I don't know anybody and I don't know anything. And Rupert and May were both so kind. And I knew that was just literally an oasis for me down there. And it was lunch every single day. And the only time that I didn't, there was a, uh, another restaurant called Ranch One over on yep. Broadway that sometimes I would grab. But Rupert introduced me to Noki I had no, I mean, I come from the Midwest. Oh, the potato yep. pasta. I don't know anything about that. He had that as a special. I ate a ton of Schaefer's. That was my go-to sandwich. I love the
1: Schaefer too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So good. And of course, it, it's not a sandwich. Paul always jokes that actually Paul would eat. Uh, so, <laughs> but Rupert and May, so kind, always just so iconic. And then my Christmas gift to the staff several years were Hello Deli gift certificates for a free sandwich that I talked Rupert into letting me put together. And I said, here's everybody who got it. Because I was scared to death somebody was going to try to counterfeit it on them or something like Uh... that. And we made this, I don't even know, Walter might've helped me with this, but uh, I made basically a dollar bill with Rupert's face on there. And that was the uh, gift certificate that I gave as a staff Christmas gift. So Rupert and May were such an important part of my time in New York. I love them both dearly.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And I wish them both the best of luck and, uh, yeah, I just, I appreciate them so, so, so much. And again, Rupert, again, it's like God took the word kind and made it into a human. I've said that many times, but it's, the yes, person. I just, yes. I just love them so much. And boy, you're the professional, the segue. Uh, my word, I love that. Okay. So I'm a collector of things. I, that's just what I do. When I get into something, I collect things around it. Um, I've been fortunate enough with this Letterman podcast to now be really, really have some cool stuff. Uh, I now have something on the list that I would like, though one of those gift certificates with (laughs) Rupert's face as a dollar bill. I will see if I can find it.
0: Yes. And I don't know if you can see behind me. My wife uh, is part of our interior decorating, has some menus up. And I don't think you can see this, but this is the Hello Deli
1: Menu right behind me. So Rupert's face is
0: yep. is right there as we've been talking. He's been right on our shoulder.
1: Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> um, my one of my questions was going to be: Did you keep anything from the show? Uh, do you have anything with you now? Where in the, the, from the show as mementos?
0: I have a couple things that um I've got I've got the double eraser
1: uh, pencil, of course. I got one, and this is one of my most We actually, we've had some fires here recently uh, in Kelowna and it looked like we were going to have to evacuate. This is one of the things that I grabbed actually. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's in the ready pack. Exactly, the the go pack.
1: pack. You want to have
0: it. I love it. Um, (laughs) uh, The first ticket from that August 30th, 1993 show I have with me. And then I just stumbled across, this is the script binder that I would have every single day. uh Uh, and you know it's basically just a three ring binder but uh this is where the scripts would go and other notes and i'd carry all kinds of things and there were still some things in there so i don't know if i just had put it in a cabinet but it had the five types of meat for know your cuts of meat (laughs) that i think i would carry at all times and then i'd give that to paul because he was always going to get dragged into can you tell me the five cuts of meat? Yeah. So, one of the things I would do was try to have that ready for him. So, just for the viewers out there now, it's beef, veal, lamb, pork, and of course, variety meats <laughs> that were part of you Know Your Cuts of Meat. Um, and then I had a list in there of everybody who had done the cape. Uh, oh, so Nathan Lane, Ted Koppel, Trump, uh, yep. John Goodman. Justin Timberlake, Jimmy Fallon, uh, Nancy Agostini, yeah. uh, Jude Aww. Brennan, uh, Hal Gurney, Chris Elliott, Andrea Nadine did it. Uh, Kiva, the Grinder Girl, uh, yep. did, did it one time. John McEnroe, Bill Murray, of course, James Brown, Don Rickles, uh, Solomon Burke, which is really between James Brown and Solomon Burke, that was sort of the the, the, the driving force of of the uh, of the Cape segment, which again is uh, it's really started organically. Paul just started adding the Solomon Burke piece in as a bumper song. And then it kind of grew as just a fun thing to do during the commercial breaks. And I think yep. Dave was so charmed by it that let's make that always a part of that segment. And uh Jill Lederman uh, still has, I think, nightmares about it because it was just on that double taping day. and when viewer mail was going on, there was a ton of celebrities and stuff. and it was just one more celebrity that she had to book. For something and get coordinated and everything else and uh after i did the staff memories, she wrote to me and she goes thanks for reminding me of uh of the cape and the nightmares <laughs> that i had around that but what a great great segment
1: the uh yeah i gotta ask that you led to this one now too i, I asked this i asked this a lot more now uh because it seems like it's a pretty common thing you still dream about it do you get the dreams of the of the the panic of the show I haven't
0: for a while, but I did, I did. And I did plenty. And it would be a lot of times I'd fall asleep on the stage or something like that. And then the (laughs) audience was in or uh, Paul's trying to talk to me but I can't get over to where he needs stuff delivered or something like that. And there was a lot of, yes,
1: angsty sleeps uh, (laughs) from some of that time. Yep. I just. I'm speaking of time. I'm so. I'm so grateful uh, that you've been so generous with yours. Um, have you kept up with Dave? Have you kept up with my next guest and all of that stuff?
0: Uh, oh yeah, watch. I watch almost everything that he does. Yes, yep. definitely. And in and doing that. Um, I haven't talked to him very much. Um, at all. Um, Paul Shocker. and I trade. <laughs> Shocker! Holy cow!
1: <laughs> yes. No, I meant. I uh, meant. Have you kept up with the content coming out? Uh, the yes, U2 absolutely. Special, the YouTube special yep. must have given you a very. You'd, I, I imagine, Chris, you would have a very unique spe- uh, uh, um, opinion of the U2 special.
0: Well, I, I, I again, I thought it was great. I was yeah. not there during the week-long time that no. they were there. No, no, that was after, um, yeah. But Late Show staff members will know that I had this big, giant Joshua Tree poster in my office um, hanging there for years and years and years. So um, just that sort of all of those worlds colliding yes. sort of piece was phenomenal.
1: I could not agree more seeing Dave um, watch at the edge, you know, play the beginning of the, where the streets have no name and say, okay, play play it again. Will you like just sitting there watching him and he plays the intro to it. It was just, it was, I thought it was a magical thing and watching Dave have these mashups with these artists now that he has, you know, it's cool watching him with Billy Eilish too. That's fantastic as well, but seeing him talk to Rick Rubin, uh, you know, Jay Z, of course, and, yeah. and some of these, you know, you two have, you know, these legendary musical acts who have kind of all they all kind of came up together, and the perspective only exists because of the legacy. And 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 watching them have this, uh, magical, you know, him being strong enough, he's David Letterman. I think I swear to, to God, he could say anything to anybody, uh, because of just his forthrightness, his curiosity, all these things being able to say to Bono um you know so did you ever embarrass the band with any of your <laughs> activism and things like that or some of your 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 for lack of a better term your antics I, I, that was just mind-blowing to me um and as a fan yeah okay so you're a fan of you too as well watching those worlds collide is a is a tremendous thing if there's anybody that you would like to see dave uh talk to in this current incarnation of what he's doing the longer form stuff is there anybody that you've thought of that you uh you'd like to see him?
0: Wow, great question. Um well, I'll I'll keep along with the theme a little bit. So yeah. you put a Bruce Springsteen, a a Paul McCartney uh into that mix and let that those great interview skills talk about all of that, I think would just be incredible.
1: Yeah. Could not agree more. Uh, was there anything else that you would prepare that you had thought of that you wanted to talk about today on your first, your first appearance on uh, the Letterman podcast? <laughs> well, you're, you're kind, you're kind. Um, no, I, this has been really so much
0: fun. And and I think, you know, again, for me, the entire experience there and the chance to be with just these amazing humans yeah. um, and, and share this uh, wonderful experience that again could be stressful at times uh, this level of amazing perfection and, 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 and product that really was needed to be there. But this group effort that it, it took day after day after day and and the wonderful people that were a part of that. I, I'm, I'm so grateful to have had that opportunity and I continue to be grateful to have the friendships that I have from that to this day.
1: It pours out of you. I appreciate it. Let's finish off. What are you doing now? What have you done since 2015? And, and uh, are you still the Mulholland and Barry for somebody when it comes? No, no, I'm not. actually. Different? I I think maybe I sent an email in the
0: Colbert times to see if they were interested, but they had their own and it was going to work out fine. So yeah. no more. I, I couldn't tell you what scale is for a, <laughs> uh, a a two hour rehearsal and a one hour broadcast time anymore. I've lost all <laughs> of that. I'd have to go refresh myself for that. No, I came back. I'm living back in central Nebraska, a yeah. uh, parent of two kids, and I worked uh, in higher education actually for a a while. I was a Dean of Admissions at my alma mater at Hastings College for a number of years. Go Broncos, right on. Yes, go Broncos. And uh, now have uh, switched over. I'm doing fundraising for the Hastings Public Schools and their foundation. So we work, we've got a big elementary playground project that we're doing now. But in addition to what they can do within the budget stuff, we find wonderful donors to help the students of Hastings Public Schools and to do additional wonderful things for them
1: that's fantastic is there uh is there a website is there any shout outs that we can do to help you with your efforts Uh, thank you
0: for that yes hastings public schools.org slash uh foundation will get you there and uh so yes if anybody feels moved to want to philanthropically help the wonderful students of hastings nebraska we would be glad to do that there's a wonderful online giving form there and information about what we do
1: oh that's fantastic um Chris, I appreciate you so very, very much. I'll uh, I'll do the outro here and then we'll say our goodbye privately. Um, this is why we do the show, everybody. Um, and again, uh, knowing uh, someone said to me before Chris and I got together that our positive energies are going to converge very, very, very well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm fascinated by this. Thank you to everybody who has given support so far for the Letterman podcast. We appreciate it very, very, very much. Uh, once again, I've had a lot of kind people reach out about uh, how how my city is doing after these wildfires and stuff. Thank you for all those kind words. We really appreciate that. Things are getting better and better and better. And uh, so thank you for that. Uh, this has been another episode of the Letterman Podcast with Mike Chisholm. Coincidentally, I am Mike Chisholm. Thank you and good night. Overcoat and underpants.